Hair loss can affect an estimated 30% of women in all age groups, though a common problem, treatment and evaluation of women who suffer hair loss is limited. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, a practicing physician, and with me today is Dr. Lisa Ishii, an assistant professor of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at John Hopkins Medicine University in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome, Dr. Ishii. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So alopecia or hair loss is obviously an acutely embarrassing problem for women to discuss. How do you find women present in your practice? They usually wind up in my practice after they have been to see their primary care physician and have been frustrated with the answers that they got from their primary care physician. Alternatively, they may have heard something in the media or they may have heard something from one of my colleagues. How do you define hair loss in women? Well, the medical definition for abnormal hair loss is the loss of more than 100 hairs per day. And I stated it like that because obviously people don't sit around and count 100 hairs. (laughs) It's kind of hard to tell. A more practical definition is when you start to see the scalp showing through. That's when patients become particularly uncomfortable or patients become particularly uncomfortable when they notice large clumps of hair coming out at a time. And obviously, and we're discussing this in patients who do not undergo chemotherapy or have an obvious reason for hair loss that's medical in nature. What do you think is the most common cause for hair loss in women who are not in that scenario? Far and away, the most common cause of hair loss in those women is female pattern hair loss, which is a hormonally mediated hair loss similar to that that you see in men. And when do you think the most likely hormonal shifts are going to result in that? So you see it usually in two peaks. Women either start having it in their 30s or in their 50s. Now, obviously, there's some range within, but the two most common times for that to occur are at those stages. And unfortunately, those who start at the earlier peak in their 30s typically have a more progressive loss than those who start later on. But, you know, it's interesting because I definitely see surges in my own patient population when people are breastfeeding and menopausal, I think, more than any other group. Right. Which kind of supports that hormonal predisposition. Right. Do you find birth control pill use affects this? It can. It's not one of the more common medications that can do it, but it certainly can. Obviously, a huge classification of causes that can lead to it are medications. And within medications, that is one of them. It's not one of the more common ones, but it can do it. What other medications do you think affect that? Unfortunately, the list is very long. Some of the more common ones that people take are beta blockers. Several of the beta blockers do it. Several anticoagulant agents do it, such as heparin and coumadin, which, as we both know, many patients have to take. Several of the anticonvulsant class of medications can do it even some of the medications that people take for high cholesterol. So there you have, you know, common chronic illnesses that people may need to take medication for that the most popular effective medications are going to cause hair loss. Are there ways you think that patients can prevent hair loss if they're on one of those medications? Unfortunately, no. If the medication is contributing to the hair loss, there's nothing they can do. They can use one of the medical therapies for hair loss to try to keep what they have as long as possible. But unfortunately, the real way to make it not happen is to stop taking the medication or to switch to a different class of medication that doesn't have that effect. Are there medical conditions that we have not talked about that are also going to increase the risk of hair loss? Absolutely. And that's a huge issue because it's much more of a problem in women than it is in men. So in women, it's much more likely for a medical cause to cause hair loss, 
such as iron deficiency or uh, thyroid insufficiency. So those are two big things that you always want to look for in a woman who states that she's having hair loss where she had a normal head of hair before. And the reason that's so important is because those are medical things that we can treat easily enough. If someone is iron deficient, you can get them on iron supplementation and you can stop the hair loss and, in fact, reverse it. And the same is true with women who have a hypofunctioning thyroid. You can start them on a thyroid medication and reverse the effect of the thyroid insufficiency. How long do you think it takes after the recovery of anemia or thyroid irregularities for the hair to grow to a normal amount? Unfortunately, several months. So unfortunately, with all of the causes, including the medical causes such as iron deficiency and a low-functioning thyroid, takes several months on the order of 12 to 18 months before they're going to get back to normal. That's even true for the more stress-related losses such as that related to pregnancy or that related to a severe stress in your life such as the loss of a loved one. The sad truth is that it's going to take a long time before you get back to your normal hair density. And that's what's really frustrating. Do you recommend any other behavioral changes for these patients who are suffering from alopecia? No. If there is not a deficiency that you identify, such as those that I mentioned, no. One that patients ask me about frequently is biotin. There's been a lot of media about biotin, and there are really no scientific data to support that. It's unfortunately true about a lot of the natural stuff that's out there. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you think, other than the hormonal etiology, is the main difference between female and male pattern baldness? The pattern of hair loss that they experience. So men most commonly start with a receding anterior hairline. Their hairline in the front starts receding back. Or they may have a patchy bald spot on the posterior part of their scalp or a combination of the two. In women, it's more likely to be a diffuse thinning that affects the entire top of the scalp. Additionally, women rarely progress to true baldness the way men do. So that's one thing that's reassuring. Unfortunately, they typically have a diffuse thinning that occurs instead of being restricted to one area. Women typically keep their hairline in the front. They may have some thinning of it and their part may widen, but in general, they don't lose their hairline in front the way men do. How do you evaluate these patients when they first present to you? So you want to do a thorough evaluation of their entire scalp to make sure that you're not missing one of the other causes of alopecia, some of the scarring types that can be caused by alopecia areata or lupus. You want to be sure that there's not something that is a dermatologic etiology in nature. And then you want to look at their hair shafts to see if the hair is coming out at the root or if it's breaking. You want to pull the hair to see if the hair easily pulls out That must be a very popular part of the physical exam. Right, right. (laughs) I always warn them in advance. It's always a good thing. And so when you evaluate these patients, if you've done a thorough exam and you think it's one of the non-scarring alopecia types, are there any other tests you do? Again, I want to check and make sure that there's not a medical cause, so I send them for blood work to check their iron levels and their thyroid hormone levels. Additionally, if there's any reason to think that this could be related to polycystic ovary syndrome, then I would send them to an endocrinologist also for a complete hormone evaluation. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, we're discussing hair loss in women, and we're being joined by Dr. Lisa Ishii, who's an assistant professor of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at John Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore. And 
We were just talking about some of the testing we would do for women with alopecia, and we had talked about some systemic hormonal changes. When do you think a skin biopsy is required in the evaluation of alopecia? A skin biopsy is required if you see an area of scarring. So if there is an area where the hair has been lost and when you examine it, it appears that there are no follicles in that region, then a biopsy is warranted. And as a primary physician or as a OBGYN seeing a patient with this, if you do evaluate a patient, look at their scalp and do the iron and thyroid testing and things seem fine, when is the appropriate time to send a patient to a specialist to be evaluated? At that point. And you actually want to be sure that you can find someone in your area with expertise in hair loss because I've actually found that there are many patients who say they even saw a dermatologist and the dermatologist didn't have very many answers for them. So it's worth the effort to find someone who has some expertise specifically in hair loss, diagnosis, and management. Yeah, I would agree. I think that the natural patterns we find are a referral to dermatology, irrespective of their background. So I think that brings up a really good point. What do you think are some of the treatments we can offer patients with this non-medically caused hair loss? So in general, there are medical treatments and there are surgical treatments. And you always want to start with the medical treatments and see how much you can get with that. So the two medical treatments for women are actually the same as they are for men. It's just it's never advertised for women as it is for men. And that's Rogaine and Propecia. So Rogaine is minoxidil, and it's a topical agent that you apply to the scalp on a twice-daily basis. It's FDA-approved for hair loss in men, but not in women. How do you think it works? They actually don't know the way it works. It has a fascinating history. So minoxidil was initially an antihypertensive drug, and the men who were taking it found that they were having hair growth. And so it was a serendipitous discovery that it had some effect like that. And still, it's not known how it works. Do you find that the minoxidil only works as long as the patient is using it? Exactly. That's absolutely true. So how long do you usually recommend patients try to use that material? Several months. Patients are usually very eager to see some results, and they're usually very eager to do whatever they can as quickly as possible but I really try to educate them as much as possible and encourage them to give the medication enough time to have some effect before we do anything else. Mm -hmm. That being said, even if we are going to do something else, taking the medication can enhance our surgical results. How long would you use it if it is working? If it's working, if someone likes the effect they're seeing, I have patients use it indefinitely. And are there any long-term risks to that use? Not known. Minoxidil has been studied less in women than it has in men, but to this point, we're not aware. Some women have noted facial hair growth, very low percentage, but again, hopefully, as this issue becomes discussed more commonly as it relates to women, we'll be able to get more data to answer that question with more certainty. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned Propecia. Is that something you would use instead of minoxidil or concomitantly? So the best thing is to do uh, concomitantly. So Propecia is finasteride, and it's a medication that you take by mouth once daily. And it actually was discovered serendipitously as well. It was initially for uh, benign prostatic hypertrophy. And those men taking it noticed that they had hair regrowth. So that's how that came about. 
Propecia is not FDA approved for women because of the concerns that the hormonal effects would have on the fetus if a woman were pregnant. That being said, most of the hair specialists these days are encouraging their female patients to try it if those patients are certain that they will not become pregnant. Not unlike the use of something like Retin-A, you just make sure patients use additional birth control during the usage. Exactly. Of it. It's interesting because there's a lot of discussion about preconception exposure to Propecia, not in yourself being taking it as the woman who wants to be pregnant, but in handling, for example, your husband's materials. And so we often caution patients to not handle the Propecia, even from a topical perspective. Right. So obviously that's something that people do know a little bit about. So do you think that the benefit of the Propecia is more in the premenopausal or postmenopausal patient? No. It's actually, surprisingly, not. It's equally distributed, its effects between the two. When would you consider surgical therapy for a treatment of alopecia in women? So I would consider that if a woman hasn't achieved the desired hair density with medical therapy and if she is a candidate for the procedure, and what would make someone a candidate is if she had enough donor hair available for the procedure. Unfortunately, women, because of the pattern of the hair loss that they typically have, most women are because the donor site is located on the back of the scalp. And women and also men actually typically maintain the hair on the back of the scalp the longest. That's the last site to be affected. How expensive is this procedure? It varies regionally. It's a procedure that is not covered by insurance. So the rate is typically set by the physicians who are performing it in their particular geographic region. can range anywhere from a few thousand dollars up to fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, just depending on the specialist performing it. And so they're transplanting hair from one location on the head to the other in this procedure? Correct. And in the future, do you feel that that works long-term? If someone's having a hair loss problem, don't the same issues apply whether the hair is from one side of the head or the other? It actually doesn't. Interestingly enough, there's something about the hair follicles in the back of the scalp that are different as compared to those on the other portions of the scalp that undergo the loss. So while it's not a permanent fix, the real reason that it's not is because you continue having loss in the area where you transplant the new hairs. In other words, the new hairs that you transplant stick around, but the ones that were the original hairs, you continue to lose. Mm -hmm. So if you're transplanting into a region that the hair is of low density, but there is still hair there, then you can fill it in nicely and get a great result but in 10 years, you may be back to where you were because you continued having loss of the original hairs. Thank you to Dr. Lisa Ishi, who's been our guest. We've been discussing hair loss in women. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit ReachMD.com. Thank you.